Are you a tackle football fan? Kick off your day with an episode of Colts Corner. A group of passionate Colts fans discuss the latest news around Indianapolis Colts football. You don't want to miss us. Follow us on Facebook, Colts Corner One, and on Twitter at Colts underscore Corner One, and all major podcast platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to We're Watching Here. We're Watching Here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he's more than a brother, less than a wife, Perry Cyber. <laughs> Thankfully, this isn't ending anytime soon, so we're staying sober. <laughs> how you doing, Perry? Good, how are you, Chris? I am doing great because today we're going to talk uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, we are. Quentin Tarantino. I'm very excited to talk about that for a bit. Before we do, what have you been watching? Oh, what have I been watching? I have, uh, for the first time, I caught up with a movie that I have been meaning to watch my entire life. <laughs> a late 60s classic that had gotten away from me until a few days ago. I finally watched Paul Mazursky's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Okay. Which I had never seen. I was, uh, it was sitting there on the Criterion Channel and it was leaving at the end of July and I thought, I better do this while the getting's good. And I was, so happy with it. Like it's, it is, okay. uh, it is not the film I expected. Even though I'd read some about it over mm-hmm. the years, um, it is this amazing piece of comedy and drama that you think it's satirical. You think it's making fun of the very touchy feely est movement of the late sixties and early seventies, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, there's some element of it that recognizes how silly it can be, but it treats it with real respect and it spins out the ramification of truly following that sort of lifestyle for a while. Uh, And it catches that point of when boomers who weren't quite young enough to be the flower children of the 60s see these changing mores and affect it. Like, the, the closest thing I've seen to it are... Uh, the parents in the ice storm. Okay. Like that's, okay. that's yeah. the generation that's, you're not free love hippies, but that's all mm-hmm. going on around you and you think it might have some merit and value, which they don't in the ice storm. That's, <laughs> there's a different thing going on in Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Uh, but I was just amazed by the tone. Uh, the performances are great. Robert Culp is fantastic in it. Okay. Uh, and it launched Elliot Gould, of course. Uh, it's a it's a really marvelous film. I'm sad it's it's not on Criterion anymore, but I, it, it, that's on a, that's on TCM every once in a while. And if uh, if you've never seen it, I recommend it really highly. It's a film that feels uh, both of its time being a 1968 film and just a little at it. it feels like a film more from 72 or 73 in a lot of ways. It's okay. a really great it's a really great piece of work. And I'm hoping it'll cycle back through on Criterion. A couple notes on Criterion Channel, though. I think it's an episode that we haven't aired yet, but we talked a little bit about Criterion Channel. So after we recorded our last thing, I was like, I'm going to watch the Criterion movie that I said I was going to watch. Pulled it up. I have a Google Chromebook. 
Criterion Channel does not work. work on the the no, 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 yeah. So, thankfully, we have this other one. I'll, I'll get around to that. But instead, I went to uh, Barnes & Noble. I had a gift card, and they had a Criterion sale going on. Perfect. And I walked away with, uh, oh gosh, what did I get? Facing the Crowd. Nice. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Nice. And Lost in America. Nice. So, I, have, I have two of those. So three. three good ones, and then my son <laughs> broke our TV, and I can't watch TV. Oh. So, <laughs> but what I did see is The Lion King. <laughs> and, uh, oh, 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 I took oh. to see this. I, I think I said this back when I talked about Aladdin. I was kind of dreading the Lion King. I did not realize how much I could dread the Lion King. Um, <laughs> I am all for a movie that just wants to be a technical showcase and really push special effects. And I will say they have reached a level in the Lion King where they can do anything with computers now. You can make lions look like actual lions and zebras look like actual zebras and that is amazing but you know what lions cannot do is emote <laughs> and they cannot dance yeah and it is the it, it i can't even say like whatsoever there's a disconnect you cannot connect with this movie at all because if you've seen the lion king which isn't I don't think it's the classic everyone says but I liked it a lot when I saw it as a kid I saw it several times as a kid if you've seen it, this movie is basically Gus Van Zandt's Psycho with The Lion King. It is shot for shot, line for line, but all the energy, all the color is gone. And you're just kind of watching lions fumble around, and it feels like someone took a nature documentary and dubbed Lion King dialogue <laughs> off it. And it is the most creatively bankrupt thing I've ever seen And that is saying something for Disney. Uh, that is saying for <laughs> something for Disney that they do something this cynical and this just craven. Like even Aladdin, which I didn't like, they changed some stuff up. They 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 tried something new. Whether it worked or not is another question. This is just the same movie. But there's a reason why they told it in animation before and didn't dub over nature dialogue. You need emotion. You need color. You need energy. That does not exist in The Lion King. My son loved it. The only <laughs> way I'm going to see this is if it was actually Gus Van Zandt's Lion King. This is the <laughs> film I want now. I didn't even know I wanted this till you till you put this in my head. Well, one of those, they've got they probably still got Hunchback of Notre Dame and things like that. Maybe they'll get Gus Van Zandt to do one of those. <laughs> I'm sure he's a hunter or something. Anyways, let's move on to a movie that does have a lot of energy, a lot <laughs> of emotion, uh, not a lot of them. Well, a little bit, but it it's definitely. More creatively original than The Lion King. <laughs> it's and got people who can emote in it. Absolutely. And that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Perry, tell us what this movie is and then uh, what you thought about it. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Quentin Tarantino's best titled film since Pulp Fiction. And it is the story of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Rick Dalton is a 50s Western TV star, star of the NBC Screen Gem series Bounty Law, uh, <laughs> who uh, leaves that show for a, a bit of a film career, but it's now 1969, and uh, the career ain't going like it used to. And we hear all about it in an early scene when he sits down with an agent, played by Al Pacino, who lays out why his career is, is not going well, and why he should go to Italy and make spaghetti westerns, which Rick really doesn't want to do. Uh, 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 so Rick is in this moment of career crisis and uh, has a complete lack of self-confidence, leans more than ever on his aide-de-camp, his right-hand man, his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. Uh, and we just, we, we kind of hang out with Rick and Cliff yeah. and check out their life for a couple of days, a couple of days in February of 1969. 
pushing on uh, Rick's buttons, uh, among the many things, are his new neighbors just down uh, just down the road on Cielo Drive, are Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, who have taken over the house down the street, uh, the hottest director of the, of the moment. Rick's thinking, boy, I could, I could just, I'm just one dinner party away from being in the next Roman Polanski movie. That's really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and so we follow Rick. Uh, we follow Cliff as he does some odds and ends for Rick, and ends up meeting uh, a, a young lady on the street and gives her a ride out to see her living conditions. I'm going to leave that there for the time being. <laughs> and uh, we watch Rick go to uh, go to a day at work, uh, shooting a one dayer on a, on a, a TV western in 1969. And we also get to hang out with Sharon Tate a little bit as we find out what it's like to be. One of the hot young starlets in Hollywood in 1969, they go to all the swankiest Hollywood Hills parties, uh, and that's that's pretty much the first two hours. Mm-hmm. And then there's another 40 minutes, which, which we'll, we'll talk, talk about in a little bit. Yeah, we'll give you a warning before we get there. What do you think about the movie? I love this movie. I think it's a great film. I think it's uh, you know in the grand stroke, broad stroke thing. It's it's I think it's Quentin's best since Inglorious Bastards. Uh, and I think that it is like *Inglorious Bastards* was a marvelous love letter to the power of cinema, quite literally. Considering the ending, mm-hmm. I think this is his love letter to actors. I think this is a just a love letter, not to necessarily Hollywood in 1969, and not to not to the TV westerns of the 50s specifically, but just to actors. Uh, to the human beings who who make movies, uh, including others behind the camera, but actors especially, it's a pleasure to watch DiCaprio in this. He's never been handed a part that required this much range. He's got to do a lot mm-hmm. and do it with someone who isn't as talented as he is. <laughs> He's got to play dumb, which is tough to do for a really smart actor. <laughs> Truth be told, to play believably not as talented as you yes, actually are he has is really hard. Um, and he does it, and does it in these great, like you you understand Rick, and you understand Rick when he's acting, <laughs> and you, you have seen enough, Quentin has given enough, uh, he's planted enough seeds with what Rick's going through in his life that you can see what Rick is drawing from when he's acting. Uh, and he's, uh, as always, cast the film beautifully uh, with a bunch of other fantastic actors who support everything he's trying to get to. Timothy Oliphant is fantastic as the uh, the star of the day we- the western that DiCaprio is going to shoot. Lancer, today. right? Lancer, yeah. yes, uh, yeah, yes, the Dingo Lancer joke, yes, indeed. Uh, uh, and it's just. It's just a joy to watch him, to watch Tarantino play in this setting for a while. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think we talked about this when we did our, um, like, episode about criticism. I think we hit on this. There's there's usually a part in the summer where I start to really get feeling like this is a grind. <laughs> because even if I like the movies, like, I liked Spider-Man Far From Home. I have nothing to, new to say about the eighth Spider-Man movie in ten years. I liked it. But that's why. But you start to feel like, oh, everything's kind of the same. Everything's a slog, and everything is just manufactured to get those tickets. And there's not a lot to chew on. And the best feeling I got was coming out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, driving home, 
and legitimately thinking, I don't know what I thought about that movie. <laughs> to the point where I'm like, I, I didn't know if I liked it just yet. I didn't know. I knew I enjoyed watching it. But whether it was good or bad, and I spent three or four days just thinking about, you know, mulling over different choices he made in this movie, different plot threads, things like that. Just thinking back to watching, like you said, these actors at work. Uh, I really love this movie. But, <laughs> but it, it settled in a place where I think it's one of my favorite Tarantino movies. <sighs> I think it is all the things you love about him, which is he can just shoot actors hanging out like no one else. Gives them great dialogue gives them these long conversations that don't always have to go anywhere and there's not necessarily, you know, in you know, a button to the end of the scene, but he just watches them hang out and it's so much fun just to spend time with them and be in this world. But I also felt like this was the sweetest movie Tarantino has made in a lot of ways. And <laughs> really in a lot of ways it might be I I think I said this elsewhere online like, all his movies are personal. You always know what turns Tarantino on in his movies. This is the first one where I felt like I got a little glimpse of, oh, this might be what makes him cry. Hello. This makes him a little... It's wistful in places, which you don't get in Tarantino movies. <laughs> and I, I think it's I think it's his most mature, thoughtful film yet. I don't know that it's my favorite of his, but it's, it's up there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in particular, are just so much fun to watch. Jumping off the idea that it's his uh, wistful, and I like that, I like the use of that word, uh, this is, uh, in a lot of ways, it's a fusion of Jackie Brown and Death Proof. That's really what the combination is here, because Jackie Brown does have that. Jackie Brown is the other one that is genuinely dealing, and it's even more, it's it's an emotionally deeper film than this film. Uh, cause he actually invests the characters with those emotions. He's not just playing it out for his own sake. Right. The characters are actually experiencing this. But, you know, uh, a lot of people are talking about how this is about the, a generational shift in Hollywood. It's about Rick Dalton realizing the end of his time. And I think that that's really oversimplifying what's going on here. That's also what Death Proof was about. Death Proof was about an old time stunt guy who mm. couldn't let things go. Uh, that of course is played for horror and comedy <laughs> where this is played for uh, let's just call it anticipatory horror. <laughs> sure, okay, that's a good <laughs> and, one, yeah. And, and a really humanistic look at, well, yeah, instead of putting it in Stuntman Mike and in, uh, the other sociopath that that character was in Death Proof to give it into someone who is actually capable of real emotion and is, mm-hmm. and is sensitive and is very ego-driven <laughs> and is, is not sure what's going on in his life. I just love the indecision in, in Rick so much. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful quality to the point that, and no one is talking about this. He has a stutter. I have that in my review. It is never explained. It's never yep. even mentioned by another character. I love this touch. And let's uh, just uh, another, you know, not as if I haven't praised DiCaprio enough in the minutes we've been talking about this. A perfectly executed stutter throughout. Yeah. Like it's never, it never seems showy. It never feels like, oh, he's doing the stutter. He just stuttered. No, it's not overly pronounced. It's just enough right. where you can catch him tripping over it and know that he's aware of it because it always comes in those moments where he's a little insecure. Yes, he's he when he's on screen, he doesn't have it. Never. And there's a scene I love, and it's it, it, there's no reason in it ex- for it except to kind of just watch him and then understand what he's going through as an actor, how he's maybe being reinvigorated with his passion. It's that long sequence 
where he's filming the scene on Lancer. Yes. With and Timothy Oliphant? The first yeah. scene of that. Yes. Because there are two. Yes. The, the one, yes. Okay. The one, the one in the saloon. Uh, the, I guess they're both in the saloon, but, uh, <laughs> it's, know, a, Timothy it's, a, Oliphant. it's a 60s TV western. The saloon was the only set. And I love the way Tarantino films that because you get this feeling of what, like, just the long camera take, the, it feels almost like you're watching this TV show. And it, you feel what it's like when someone is acting and they're on that run where they're on this high, they're nailing every line, but then you just feel that snap when there is a flubbed line and how the illusion is just so easily broken. And I love that. At first I was wondering, I'm like, where is this going? And then he flubs his line and you just feel like even the camera goes back as they start to take the scene over. Back to one. Yeah. And like you said, DiCaprio's playing an actor. Like I, Playing an actor who's acting has to be the hardest thing for an actor, except playing an actor who's acting and they're not a great actor. But a good actor. Good. That's yeah, the thing. He's, it's like he's right not level. Because you can act badly. Yeah. Really well. Yeah. But this is like not. I mean, let's. Uh, and even even that can be really hard. Let's be honest. I mean, I I I, I continually every time I go back to it, marvel at what Julianne Moore does in Boogie Nights mm-hmm. in the scenes. <laughs> That she has to, the porno scene she has to sit within that movie. That's a spectacular level of bad acting yes. that she manages to pull <laughs> off. It's very special out of her. Yeah, agree. I agree. He just, he's just, I don't know how he found it. I don't know that Tarantino knew he was going to get this good a performance. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect he probably did. <laughs> I'm sure they've been working on it together for a while. But still, and I feel like he's not going to get the praise. For this, that I think he really deserves. I think it's one of the best performances of his career. I would totally agree. I think DiCaprio is an actor who, in the right hands, his bigness can be really used really well. Yes. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I, I think that is a movie that knows how to use DiCaprio like a weapon. Like that uses his charisma and his energy and just. And he's got good comic timing yeah. that is used really well in that movie, especially. Yeah, and here I think Tarantino sees the same. He knows how to get that performance. Have him go, like, do a big performance. But what helps is he's offset by Pitt, who isn't giving a big performance. He's he's <laughs> kind of just, I think I described him as, he's just kind of contentment personified in many scenes. He's just kind of happy to not be in jail. And, <laughs> and just, he's, you know, Rick's kind of hanging around trying to keep the party going. And Cliff is just content to have had a seat at the party and yes. be there. And I love watching Pitt and DiCaprio together because it's just, they complement each other so well in this movie. And I could have a whole movie about Cliff and his dog. <laughs> just There's a sequence where Cliff goes home and makes dinner for his dog and himself. <laughs> and it's a movie in itself. It is so much fun to watch. I, I love just the labels on the dog food and... Yes. They're rat-flavored dog food. and They are. The two of them are literally hot and cold in this movie. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, in, in all sorts of ways, they are hot and cold. And it is fun to watch them play together. DiCaprio is, he's playing the part that is, in a way, less iconic. Like, like I almost think, if to a, to a, I think on a first viewing, it's easy to think of Pitt as walking off with the movie. Because mm-hmm. he gets to be uber cool. <laughs> yeah, and he gets the big... And never breaks that. Ever. Yeah, he gets the big cowboy scene. Like, where we're yeah. off playing cowboy, Cliff is actually in more of what we assume is going to be a heroic moment that's kind of nicely deflated, but... 
I I think I did leave thinking, oh, Brad Pitt is fantastic in this movie. DiCaprio kind of does what he does. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, no. they need each other. Other way around. Yes. And they are both just so much fun to watch. I love... I, their relationship is really the heart of this. I, I love how... It, it's really complex when you think about it because you have Rick who has all the success and all the trappings. And Cliff is happy just to kind of be his gopher. And Rick's not... Really above exploiting that when he needs to. Not at all. But Cliff doesn't resent that, and it's just. And, and but there's also this real camaraderie between them too. They're happy to just sit back with beers and watch Rick on TV. And yep, it's it's such a well thought out relationship. I, I it's one of my favorite, two of my favorite characters in Tarantino movies. <laughs> I, I just love watching them together. Um, and we haven't even talked about Margot Robbie yet. We haven't talked about Margot Robbie or about the other, uh, the, the cloud of dread that hangs over the entire yeah. two hours of the movie, which is, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a really entertaining flashback <laughs> at about the hour point in the movie in which we learn a little bit about Cliff's, uh, we learn, we learn a little about Cliff's backstory. Mm-hmm. We learn why he's no longer getting work as a stuntman. Uh, and at the end of that, he, while this happens, he's up on, uh, he's up on Rick's roof. He looks out and he and he sees an ice cream truck arrive at the end of the circular drive that ends just before the gate that leads up to the uh, Polanski Tate residence, and uh, watches a buckskin jacketed, shaggy, dark haired young man come out of the uh, come out of the ice cream truck and walk up and see if anybody's in the house. Uh, and you learn that that is Charles Manson. Except they never use the word Manson once. In the no, they don't. Movie. They don't. You just know it's Charlie. Charlie's going to dig you, man. <laughs> and. Uh, and so that's there in hovering. If you didn't understand that the date of uh, that 1969 was the date in which the Manson murders happened, uh, the, uh, this is the tip off that it's it's going to be there. And so you're always sort of waiting for that shoe to drop. And sure enough, one of the uh, one of the girl, uh, Cliff keeps seeing this attractive hippie girl on the streets, thumb and rides. And the third time he sees her, finally picks her up. And she has to be taken out to Spawn Movie Ranch, which, if you know your Manson history, you know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to talk about this because I think that sequence at Spawn Ranch is is uh, uh, Tarantino in Excelsius. I think it is an outstanding sequence. And we're talking about an outstanding directed sequence. This is, for me, a even better directed film than written film. I don't know that the themes all really mean anything or coalesce into a, an organic cohesive thought mm-hmm. but the experience of watching this movie and seeing this movie and and the way that these images are put together just seem to imbue everything with the meaning that I need I can't articulate it it's the perfect example of Jean-Luc Godard's great quote about how the only way to critique a movie is to make a movie mm-hmm. and I don't I'm not saying I think this movie is a critique of a diff- of another movie I don't really know. I don't have the words to describe what this movie experience is, as as that you fully capture what it's like to to see it and experience it. And this sequence is where it really flowers for me, uh, if for no other reason than in ten minutes he accomplishes far beyond what Ari Aster spent two and a half hours trying to do in Midsummer. <laughs> it's it's the same scare, and it's way more effective mm-hmm. <laughs> for a number of reasons. Well, it's. The way I kind of want to go back too, because the way Tarantino handles the the hippie element in the movie is really it's it's unsettling. It's there almost feel like a virus that's kind of coming well, into town, and it's this idea of youth. 
I think yes. Leo Scott talks about this in his review. It's almost a very conservative movie in many ways. This idea of youth kind of coming over, and it's replacing Rick and Cliff. And they're literally in that sequence overtaking Rick and Cliff's old playground. They are yes. they're there where they used to work there. It's this youth coming in to replace them. And maybe there's a metaphor that doesn't quite connect the whole way, but you feel it whenever it cuts to the hippies in this movie. This first sequence where they, they come in and they're scrounging through the trash and they, so you just feel something's off. Yes. And to be fair, because I, 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 this is, and this is my own issue with this. I want to be real clear that it is not the hippies in general. Mm-hmm. When we see hippies in this movie, we see the family. Yes. We, yes. I, I, that's a very good distinction. I, and that's for me where it sort of like, where the disconnect maybe happens with mm-hmm. a theme that, but I don't know that Tarantino really wants that theme there. I don't know that that's what he's saying. It's an idea mm-hmm. he's playing with, absolutely. And yes, absolutely true. They are, their old play, that's a beautiful way to put it. Their old playground has been overrun by, it is now dilapidated and run by people who don't care and are making them seem obsolete. And you have that scene where it's a shot where Cliff is walking down the Spawn Movie Ranch, like the the midway there. Yes. And they are crouching in the doorways. And it's like, it's a real-life cowboy movie. It's the scene where the yeah. rides into town and all the townsfolk are just staring. And then it devolves into the sequence that is just so filled with tension and suspense. It's like, I, I like your phrase anticipatory horror yes because you you think you know where this scene's going and there's no turning back from it and then it takes a turn that i it kind of lets the air out of the tires but in a good way like it's the sigh of relief it takes a couple of those turns yeah i would argue (laughs) it's it's really effective huge shout out to dakota fanning who does the best squeaky from impression i have ever seen that is a fantastic single scene <laughs> piece of work. He just gets if you if you are if you are versed in any way in Manson lore and know your squeaky interviews. <laughs> wow, she nails it and and makes it seem utterly lived in and real. This is not an evocation. This is not a symbol. This is just a character mm-hmm. in this movie. But oh, does it play into? What you know. If you know, it plays into what you know in fantastic ways. I love... That sequence is embedded. There's like three strands going on in the movie at that point. And that's when you have the scene I talked about earlier. Isn't it where uh, Rick is shooting Lancer? Is Ron That's what's going Cliff? on, yes, while 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 Cliff is off at, at Spawn. Yes. And then you have Sharon Tate watching herself in a movie. Yes. Which... I love this sequence. I, I love her going to the movie. And I want to talk more about it in spoilers because I think there's some there's some choices that Tarantino makes that I think tie into where he ends up going with the movie. Oh, yes. And But just in the moment, just the, the shots of her watching herself on screen, and it's Margot, Margot Robbie actually watching Sharon Tate on screen. Yeah. But, but just focusing on Robbie right now, is she starts to hear the chuckles through the theater when her character does something funny. Yeah. And just, it, it lets Sharon Tate be a person. And I feel like, you know, she's always, and whenever you hear her name, it's always in conjunction with the Murs, always in conjunction with being a person. Yes. And he lets her just be this person who goes and buys a book and goes and goes to see a movie and goes to parties and is 
experiencing all the hope that comes with youth, with being part of the scene, which I think, I, I like that you differentiated between, it made the clarification that not all the hippie, or the hippies here are the Manson family, but I don't think Tarantino's necessarily saying anything against youth. Right. Because Sharon Tate is portrayed as kind of the symbol of hope and this anticipation anticipation and on the cusp of something big. And doubly, he is... I mean, he says he'd love to be in a Plansky movie. He's not afraid of the new talent. Yeah. At all. And on top of that, the other reason I loved, from a straight up, just, you know, screenwriting 101 standpoint, what I love about that scene structurally is it it connects Rick and Sharon. They're Mm -hmm. both insecure. She's, She's... Making oh my gosh, people really do like what I'm doing. That's beautiful. It's she doesn't she doesn't go and watch herself out of any sort of vanity. Like mm-hmm. I think she's genuinely curious. Like yeah. it doesn't play. Yeah. I just love watching me. That's not how it. Play. I think she wants to say. I think she's there because it's. Am, am I? Good? Oh, I'm good. People do like it. I think I'm pretty good. But oh, people other people think I'm good too. Yeah. it's adorable. It's yeah. it's lovely. As you were saying, it's just a beautiful grace note that, like I said, I think connects into what for me works in the movie, which is the idea of it's just a, it's such a love letter to actors. Mm-hmm. It really is. Well, there's also, and this I guess ties in with the idea of youth in this movie. There's that great sequence where Rick is on his uh, lunch break. He's reading his paperback novel. <laughs> he starts talking to the little girl he's in the scene with. Yes, and he starts seeing this kind of shift. Like she's a very method-driven actor. Do not call her an actress. And uh, <laughs> she's, she's very serious, very focused. And it could be the scene where he realizes his time is up, except then he goes and takes it and gives this performance that wows her. And, and you see how yes. much that means to him. And it, it, I, I, it's just a pleasure to watch. I don't yes. know if there's anything deeper about that, but it's part of what I love about this movie is it's just so much fun to sit there and watch. Yes. It, it's... It, it's just, yeah. It's you just, live in it. Yeah, you do. And the the other choice I noticed is all these characters are kind of going about their business, separate, you know, separate plots, separate stories, kind of just doing their own thing. Sometimes they're not even aware of each other, but they're all connected because one thing I love is the use of music in this movie, mm-hmm. how it's all coming from car radios yes. or, or thing, and everyone's listening to the same thing and everyone's connected. Yes. And that's just, it just more immerses you in this world. I, he, he really builds this great world, this Hollywood that probably didn't really exist, but it's it existed for in his mind. And well, if nothing else, it plays at the idea of that using the radio like that gets at the idea of this was the point where there was still a mass culture, mm-hmm. it, and this is the beginning of the end of that. I mean, you've got you know we we have talked about this. And uh, we've talked about this a bunch. And that you know that is that is the exact point in time where it splits, and the studios don't know the youth market anymore. And so everybody gets to Dennis Hopper gets to come in and make you know he spends whatever pittance he spends to make Easy Rider, and the film makes tens of millions of dollars, becomes an absolute cultural phenomenon, and Bonnie and Clyde happens, and The Graduate happens. Yeah, <laughs> this is. The beginning of, of of the true fracture, where there isn't one thing that everybody's listening to, and uh, yeah, I like that the radio is both a precursor of that because of the music that's being played, and at the same time shows the unification of everybody because they are all experiencing it and listening yeah. to it. Um, one other thing before we get into spoilers, 
I, I Tarantino has said a lot that ten films he's done, and I don't know. You know, a lot of people say that. I don't know. I I, I don't know how serious he is. But this feels like a movie from a filmmaker who's getting ready to say goodbye in many places. <laughs> because there, are, there is a sense in which, just like Rick's dealing with the fact that the Hollywood he came up in is starting to not exist, the indie world that Tarantino helped usher in is starting to change and go away. And <laughs> not starting. It's yeah, gone. The theatrical experience is going away. I mean, we talk about... You, you talked about the, uh, the monoculture being gone. Yeah. I, I mean... Just look, Netflix alone has 10 different audiences it's trying to serve. Yeah. And it does feel like Tarantino is, this feels like a film made by someone who sees maybe their own time is starting to pass. And they're kind of mournful about that a little bit. It feels like there's many ways in which this is only a movie Tarantino could make. But I feel like it's a movie he could only make right now. Yeah, like he could, He would not make this film right after Pulp Fiction. And it would not be the same. No, it would not be the same movie. He might have, but he would not be the same movie by any means. You're right. Do we have anything else before we get into spoilers? Because I'm really itching to get into this. Let me think. I, you know, if I do, we can mention it during the spoilers. It's a reason to keep listening, everybody. Okay. If you have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, pause the episode, buy a ticket, go see it. About two and a half hours later, hit play again. And uh, and join us for the rest of this thing. But right now, let's talk about the ending. Perry, what happens at the end? <laughs> So the end of the movie, uh, so we skip ahead six months. Uh, Rick decides to go to Italy. We find out he makes four movies in Italy. Also picks up a young Italian starlet bride and brings her back to the United States. Uh, at the same time, Cliff, uh, Cliff went with him, of course, and was his stuntman over there. Uh, but they have realized that it's sort of the end of the run for them being together every day. Mm-hmm. That now that Rick's married, this needs to stop. Uh, that Cliff needs to, they, he's going to move out of the city. Which is a big thing. There's a speech earlier in the movie about how important it is to live in LA and to, to live there, to really live there, to buy property, uh, and that Cliff might move out into the into the valley and uh, bank the money and live off that for a while, live a little smarter, cut back, and so he can't keep paying Cliff. So Cliff's going to be out on his own. They're going to have one epic drinking session together to say goodbye to their uh, to their their daily friendship. Uh, and in the meantime, they're they're going to have this. Uh, big old get together on uh, August eighth, nineteen sixty nine. Which, if you know your history, is the night of the Tate murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, in, uh, spoiler is coming now. Inglorious Bastards style, Quentin decides to uh, to play with history a little bit, and uh, the the family members who go to the house end up at Rick's house instead. <laughs> yep. Where, uh, where I'll, I'll just go with the old Clockwork Orange reference and say we get a bit of the old Tarantino ultraviolence. <laughs> uh, before, a, 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 as you said before, a, a bittersweet, wistful conclusion. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's enough of a description as I want to give. Let's, let's talk about what it all means. I think there's something you said at the start of the review that really, because I left the, this is when I left the movie not knowing what I thought it was I don't know what to do with this ending at first because there was a part of me that felt wow this came out of nowhere this should I be offended because this is a real life murder and but you mentioned how this is his best titled film 
yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And before I went and saw the movie, I was talking with a coworker, and she had a question about the ellipses in the title. And she's like, what do you think about these ellipses? I'm like, I don't know. It's probably an affectation or something. But understanding that title and why those ellipses are there, it's a fairy tale, very obviously. But those ellipses, that's where the wistfulness hits me. It's, this is what I wish had happened. What if the, What if those murders didn't have to take place? What, you know... It's Tarantino using film to kind of give us the ending we want. And he does, he plays throughout the movie with this idea of mischances or what might have happened. We don't know the whole truth. Um, we see, we see Rick missing, you know, imagining the great escape that he missed out a roll on. <laughs> but he's reintegrated into that footage yes. when we see it. We don't know exactly what happens to Cliff's wife. There's this whole idea of things we don't know, things that might have happened. There's two sides to the story. And I think that sets you up for this ending in many ways. I, um, I, I, I can, I, I don't, uh, I, uh, here's, here's my only problem with what you said. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, I, I, I don't want to say that this is, that this is the way he would have wanted it to happen. I know that sounds horrible, but I don't think Tarantino's ever dealing with the real world. <laughs> no, I don't think... I think that, um, for for me, my biggest take of this movie, and I'm gonna get real film nerdy here, mm-hmm. the thing that I adored about Pulp Fiction most at the time, and still to this day, is that uh, um, I, as a, as a film lover and a film viewer, have... Struggled is not the right word. Wrestled is not the quite word. <laughs> Tangled with might be the right word. Uh, the first ten years of Jean-Luc Godard, okay. the French filmmaker. Pulp Fiction was the first film I saw that absorbed Godard's early work and used it <laughs> to some other end. Mm-hmm. He stole. He wasn't saying, you need to know this for this to work. It's not a reference point to be cool or hip. It was, I am going to take this exact stylistic thing and I'm going to use it, but to do this very different thing. Okay? Okay. And that comes down to those long discursive conversations. Those, mm. The ability to just stay on one thing for a real long time and be okay with it. Uh, the idea that you are getting at large cultural concepts, uh, but where that was front and center for Godard, it, it's background for Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And he uses it in completely different ways. To that end for me, Tarantino, like Godard, and I'm borrowing from David Thompson here, who we've talked about, in, uh, it will have talked about or have talked about, I can't remember if this episode's gone up for us or not, but David Thompson uh, wrote one of my favorite that. books uh, about film where he's my, he wrote my favorite quote about Godard. Is, the problem with Godard is... Uh, that there, uh, anything exists only so that it can be filmed. There is no real, the real world is on that screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't mean to say that Tarantino is doing this as, I, I don't mean to imply that Tarantino doesn't know the difference between real life and, and the movies. He very clearly does. And, and I don't mean to imply that he, uh, certainly wanted, uh, that wanted Sharon Tate to be murdered. But I think that ending is really not supposed to be drawn outside of the movie itself. It's that you got to, that, that she did get to live. That these two actors 
do get to meet up. <laughs> that maybe Rick's career really does take off because of this, and he gets to be in well, the yeah, fairy movie. tale. Right, and I don't, but so I want it be. I want it to be the fairy tale just for the fictionalized version of these characters. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we need to spin it out any wider than that. I don't think he's saying it would be so great if it was like this. It's where I think the film isn't really a conservative film. I don't think he's asking you to draw a direct line to real life in any way with the things okay. that go on in this movie. And I think that's pretty clear throughout by so deviating from history. Mm-hmm. I think you're just supposed to take it for this. And I think it's a feeling Tarantino uh, has personally and wanted to sort of convey. Because if you really spin this out, Chris, mm-hmm. you know what doesn't exist? In a, <laughs> and I'm not being a, making a sick joke here and saying Shantae. Chinatown doesn't exist as we know it if this is the ending of this movie. Okay? Okay. <laughs> yeah. This changes right. film history in ways that I don't think Tarantino would necessarily want. Them no, I think... And says, it'd be so much better if we didn't have this. I think he's just talking about the movie. The movie he has made. Well, and, I, and I think it's beautiful for that very reason. I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. <laughs> no, no, I... <laughs> I'm going to agree. I think it is this kind of alternate reality that he creates. And I think the key to understanding that is that he doesn't do what he did with Great Escape to the Wrecking Crew. He, There's no Margot Robbie in that sequence. Right. So she's... That's the weird idea of her watching Sharon Tate on the screen. And I think that gets what you... Yes. This is... These characters have this ending. Yes. And... To get all Marvel nerdy, maybe it's a uh, multiverse in Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> head where this all happens. But I, no, I, I think no! <laughs> I, I think it is. I, I, I do. I think you're right. I think it's this fairy tale element. None of this is real, and he gets to kind of I, give these characters a happy ending. Yes, that real life didn't provide, which is what movies can do. Yeah. Um, it's it's why. You know, I wasn't one of the people offended when uh, they shot Hitler at the end of Inglorious Bastards. No, they blew him up with film. They, yes. Remember, they blew him up with film. Yes. <laughs> and I, what I loved is, though, there, there's a way to end that movie where it does feel like kind of, oh, we kicked ass, oh, look what happened. But the fact that the movie ends just lingering on that driveway at the end as Rip goes in and... You know, he's going to go meet Sharon Tate, and eventually maybe he'll meet Polanski. Maybe he'll get in a Polanski film. And it just sits there lingering on this empty driveway. It just felt like that perfect note to end it on, that it's, to go back to the word, wistful again. It's, yeah. oh, wouldn't it be great if this happened? Wouldn't, wouldn't, these characters get to do this. And we know that's not how it worked out. It doesn't need to be how it worked out. But it ends the movie on a little somber note that I, I enjoyed. And... Uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> I want to go back and see it like five more times. <laughs> uh-huh. It's, 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 it's really good. That's, I, that's all I've been able to say. Like I said, I don't, we've talked a whole lot and I don't feel, I, I, it's not a film you can explain. No. It's not a film that is saying anything profound. It doesn't have a point other than to experience it. And and whatever you get out of that experience, I think it. Like I said, I think it's a an even better directed film than it is written, and mm-hmm. that is, uh, th- that's re- usually. Well, I don't say that either. It, Tarantino's writing is usually as interesting and as full and as potent as his directing, and this I 
feel like the directing is even a little better than the writing. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the dialogue. I just mean in big, grand, thematic terms. It just it holds together as a piece of work in just really great ways that you just continue to turn over after you've seen it. It's a, it's a film you enjoy thinking about. If there was one thing that didn't quite... I haven't wrapped my brain around it. It's the choice to use Kurt Russell as the narrator before we even meet his character in the movie. And I still... That's a choice that I love just because I love Kurt Russell. But I don't quite get the reason for that. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Uh, I thought about it as well. And I kind of landed on, I think it's for the sheer reason that out of all the people in the movie, both uh, all the actors cast in the movie, he was the only one who was actually really around Hollywood in 1969. I think it gives him... That much, uh, I think it gives him that much. I think he's the only one who could carry the gravitas, and not that not that there's a lot of gravitas in that in that voiceover. In fact, there's a lot of very funny in that voiceover, which mm-hmm. Russell delivers beautifully. And that's the other reason he's, he's got a great voice. Oh, oh and the way he says can, bullshit. Yes, it starts off is just great. And both that and and he can carry the. You know, he does a great job of setting up. What you think is going to be, you know, you think throughout this movie, as a viewer, you're going to have to watch Sharon Tate be murdered. Mm-hmm. You assume that's what's coming. And as that gets, as that moment seems to be getting closer and closer, his, his voiceover gets more somber and more serious mm-hmm. and more, by the book, dragnet-ish. You know, at 9.30 this happened. Mm-hmm. And you're setting you up for this. And, and then you... Uh, thankfully and lovingly had the rug pulled out from under you. We're in spoilers, so I can say that. Absolutely. We're in heavy I, spoiler zone here. I loved the payoff to the flamethrower. Well, remember, Tarantino is a savvy enough writer to follow the cardinal rule of Chekhov, right? Which is, if you set up a flamethrower in Act 1, yep. it better go <laughs> off in Act 3. I, I just... I, I didn't expect that to make a comeback, and I loved that. I, it, yeah. It, yeah, the I, first twenty minutes of this movie, conservatively, maybe thirty, is spent in two long sequences mm-hmm. that exist for no other reason than to set up the two big surprises mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. <laughs> I mean, yes, he's setting a bunch of other stuff up and doing things, but you know that that sequence you talked about—that's so lovingly fun of the short movie of him going home to feed the dog—is yes. all set up for the end, just as the entire story about. Oh, and I'm blanking on the McCluskey, the 14 Fists of 14 McCluskey. 14 Fists of McCluskey, I think. Is that entire story is a setup for, uh, for yes, the greatest flamethrower in cinema history. <laughs> and I loved Al Pacino in, in the short <laughs> so scene. I, it's, it's nice to see Al Pacino walk on a screen and not be exhausted when he walks off the screen. <laughs> I'm glad he got to be in a Tarantino movie. I wish the Bert, it had worked out that uh, Burt Reynolds had been in the Bruce Stern role. Uh, he died right before they shot, but because uh, no, Rick, sorry. Oh no, I loved it because the Rick and Cliff characters are so modeled off Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, and just kind of their friendship. And I, I would have liked that payoff, but Bruce Dern is good too. Uh, I think Dern is fantastic. I I can't imagine Burt had been that good in that part. Well, what would have happened is he would have been good, and everyone would have said how good he is, and then he would have been like, "All right, I'll go make shit for the next." Five years or whatever. He would, have pulled the, he would have pulled the PTA and seen the film and yelled at Quentin, you've ruined my career and punched him in the face. <laughs> well, that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is playing in theaters now. Perry, do you have any other uh, thoughts on it? No. See, even if you 
If you don't like Tarantino films for the violence, don't go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. But if you are at all interested, if you are intrigued, I just think this is a film, you know, this is absolutely a film worth seeing. Go see it. Yes, I think there are problematic elements that we can certainly talk about. We could we could go on and on about what is the ethical level of having of of celebrating a character who may have killed his wife and playing for laughs that character literally destroying the face of a woman mm-hmm. on screen. Is that problematic? Yeah. Is that so problematic that it wrecks the movie? Not for me, but yeah, I'm I'm a white male. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is a conversation absolutely worth having, and that's the thing. I think it's worth having. It's a film that does not. It, it, it is a it's a fascinating piece of work. It, it, it <laughs> and is. I mean that in the best way. I'm not being coy and saying, "Boy, that's interesting." It's worth talking about. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's the rare film this summer that you're going to get in arguments about. That you're going to talk about. That you're going to see think pieces written about. That are actually full of thought. Uh, and it opened at $40 million, which encourages me. For a two-hour and 40-minute R-rated movie. Yeah, with no IP behind it. I, that makes well, me happy. Yeah, well, okay, but it's <laughs> not... <laughs> I, look, it's using history as its IP. Sure. To be fair. There's no comic books or Disney or yes, anything behind yes. it. Um, yeah, I, I go see it. It's it's fun. I have a feeling this will be on my top ten list this year. Um yeah, it's a great time. Perry, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can find me at Facebook by my name. And you can usually find me third row center at your local multiplex. You can find me writing about film at michigansportsandentertainment.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can listen to my other podcast, Wasting Time, where we talk pop culture. And if you like the conversations and you want to hear more of it, then uh, go on over to Patreon and uh, help us out a little bit. We will be back in two weeks.